five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Today I have the pleasure of having Keith Gowring as my guest. Keith is my business partner, having co-founded SpaceRef with me 18 years ago. Before we worked together, Keith was the founder of NASA Watch, and that was 20 years ago. Keith edits NASA Watch, SpaceRef, and the astrobiology websites on a daily basis. Today, we're going to talk about Jim Bridenstine's nomination as NASA Administrator by the Trump Administration. Last week's update by Elon Musk on the SpaceX Interplanetary Transport System, and Lockheed Martin's Mars Base concept. Welcome, Keith, to the SpaceQ podcast. How you doing? So, uh, NASA Watch broke the news first that Congressman Bridenstine was going to be nominated as the next NASA administrator. It, it wasn't a big secret, but it did take time. Why is it that it took so long for the Trump administration to nominate someone to replace Charlie Bolden? Well, they seem to be having uh, problems getting a lot of these nominations through. Uh, the reason why isn't clear. I think it's the fact that they have a lot of people in the administration who had not done this before. And so, you know, it just takes time to work through the agencies. You go to the, you know, to the top tier first, and then you go to the next tier and so forth. So um, I think with Bridenstine, however, they sort of knew that this was the guy that they wanted. And so that was pretty much known early this year. And uh, the fact that he uh, never got bumped from the list I think uh, says a lot about how comfortable they are with him. So based on the people you've talked to, do you think Bridenstine's confirmation process, whenever it happens, will be smooth and quick? Does he have bipartisan support? Uh, originally, there was supposed to be a confirmation hearing last week, but that got postponed. Uh, it's my understanding that uh, Senator uh, Nelson and Rubio and uh, maybe several others uh, we're dealing with uh, post-hurricane issues, and they needed a couple of weeks just to take care of that. So um, the, the, the postponement had nothing to do with Bridenstine. In terms of support, um, he's almost certainly going to be uh, voted through the committee and, and by the full Senate. There's really nothing controversial about uh, the nomination. I mean, a few issues have been raised about his previous statements about uh, uh, climate change, but if you look at what he's been saying recently, it's obvious that he's pivoting to a far more neutral stance than he may have uh, been inclined to state uh, by you know virtue of representing a uh, con you know congressional district in Oklahoma that tends to be rather conservative. But I don't expect there to be much uh, controversy other than perhaps some pointed questions about uh, uh, climate change. Uh, other than that, um, he's got the background. He has clearly has an interest in uh, space and has been active in uh, this pretty much since he started. Uh, he's a pilot, active still, so he has an understanding of aeronautics. So, uh, yeah, I really don't see any roadblocks ahead. So, Bridenstine, to my knowledge, is the first representative from either the House or the Senate to be nominated as NASA administrator. Does being a, a representative help or hurt him? I think it, in this case it might actually help because 
you know, there's been a lot of controversy say, uh, in some quarters saying, oh, my God, he's not a professional scientist or, you know, we should have, you know, professional scientists in charge or we should not have a politician. And, you know, one of the, it's kind of funny because one of the people who keeps complaining about that is Senator Bill Nelson. And Senator Nelson used – he's a politician too – used politics to get a ride on a space shuttle from NASA. So I think it's a little bit of pot kettle black as far as his uh, complaints are concerned. But if you look back at uh, you know the history of NASA, uh, I would I would venture that at least half of the administrators were not overt scientists or technology types. They were either uh, politicians or management specialists or, or, or whatnot. And um, in some cases, the people with a lot of technical training uh, may not have been the best administrators. So, you know, everybody's different. Everybody brings different strengths to the, to the job. And I think Bridenstine will be bringing um, a passion for space. Um, he's younger. He's 42, so he has a, probably has a lot more energy than some of the folks who had the job recently. But um, yeah, I think he's well-equipped for the job right now. And as a matter of fact, I think that the biggest battles at NASA will probably have to make are political, not technical, and not uh, uh, budget. I think they're going to be political. How do you, you know, structure the agency, focus it? And as a new space policy is being developed, how do you make sure that that policy has a solid political backing, too, so that it, it just does not fall flat on its face? And uh, Bridenstine got a, a thumbs up from former NASA Administrator Sean O'Keefe, also a Republican. What does that mean? Well, you, you'll find that in Washington here, there's a there's a, a, a large group of us, and I'm part of the swarm uh, of the space community, and it's uh, you know Democrats and Republicans, and very often you don't find a lot of um, partisan. Uh, divisions on space policy. It tends to be something that um, arises from the consensus within people who understand space. And so you don't see Democrats and Republicans uh, as a block fighting each other. Individuals may take the side of an administration and others may take the opposite side. But by and large, it tends to be a very nonpartisan group. If there's any controversies, it's it's along the lines of, for example, you know, people who um, uh, support human spaceflight and those who don't, or those who like commercial space and those who prefer government projects. But um, uh, the fact that O'Keefe said this, I think, speaks volumes because he is one of those um, uh, NASA administrators who did not have a technical background and was able to bring NASA back after the Columbia accident, and at least for several years while he was still there. Uh, the vision for space exploration was was very successful. And then, of course, uh, he left, and uh, a new administrator came in, and uh, we decided to go into Iraq, and that all fell apart. So, uh, speaking of policy and relationships, how do you think the relationship between Bridenstine and the renewed Space Council will be? It should be okay. I mean, uh, Scott Pace heads the National Space Council right now. He's a Republican uh, by background, but he's worked. He's Scott has worked in just about every space job you can have in Washington. Widely respected. I've known him for a very long time. Um, uh, I see nothing but I hope synergies between uh, the National Space Council and. Uh, uh, Mr. Bridenstine, once he, once he arrives at NASA, that is. And they both seem to have the strong uh, support of uh, Vice President Pence, who's actually uh, uh, been seen as uh, really rolling his sleeves up and, uh, you know, getting involved in this uh, topic. So uh, I, 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 see nothing, I see nothing that would bode ill for this relationship, just things that would bode well for it.
So the National Space Council is holding its first meeting, I think, this Thursday. Um, how long do you think it'll be before they come out with uh, some guidance and uh, before um, uh, Bridenstein comes out with some uh, new policy uh, from the NASA perspective? Well, even if they hit the ground running, I don't think you'd see with uh, you know a formal policy you know, as a government document for a year or two. I mean, it's just how long these things take. And the, the National Space Council is not the NASA Space Council, it's the national. And that means that you have other agencies, Department of Defense, Commerce, and so forth, all coming in here to form a, a, a national space policy. So that immediately means that you get a lot of meetings, a lot of wordsmithing, and a lot of hearings. So I don't see any space policy, you know, dropping on Mr. Bridenstine's desk anytime soon. And even when it does, I doubt there'll be a ra- it'll be a radical departure from what's being done. Bridenstine is going to have to just look at what is being done by NASA now and just cobble together a working uh, de facto policy for the next year or two with an eye on what the Space Council is doing. Um, I don't think the first meeting, which is I, I, I think I'll be attending, and they're just still working out the details on who can go to this, it's right down the street for me. Uh, so um, they're holding it in a museum with a lot of space shuttles and other spacecraft. So they seem to be interested in the um, the background, the backdrops, the, the, the ambiance that they're putting forth. Whether anything of substance will be said there, uh, nobody knows. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a, an all-day meeting, and it's going to be a bunch of high-level people probably reading uh, one or two pages of prepared text. And uh, I doubt you'll hear anything of substance coming from this other than we're interested in space, and uh, and, and that process starts here. So uh, basically when Bridenstein comes in, uh, he's going to – have to take a look at NASA, uh, see how the existing programs are running, and basically, there's not going to. We shouldn't see too much in the way of change in the next year or two. I don't see a lot of change. Uh, the only things that might be tweaked uh, uh, will be sort of representative of the uh, some of the schisms that popped up after the election. There was a you know the, the pro space commerce group, the people who support SpaceX and Blue Origin, and the pro SLS groups, the, the big launch system, and they tended to butt heads quite a bit. Um, Bridenstine's main challenge is going to be how do you forge a, a working relationship such, such that, uh, as you often hear the, the line, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, and not to show favoritism to either one camp or the other, but rather to both. Um, uh, other than that, I just think it's going to be dealing with the budgets as they come out. Um, the, the past two budgets that the Trump folks have put out, the so-called skinny budget and then the budget for uh, FY18, uh, NASA was largely spared any large cuts, and those cuts that were put in were reversed by Congress. So NASA already has some sort of you know, special status, or they have a warm spot for it at the White House, I'm not sure which. Uh, and so I think Bridenstine at least has that going for him as he moves ahead. And they seem to be, uh, if you look at the number of events that the White House has done, the Vice President at Marshall Space Flight Center last week, uh, a couple months back, he was at Kennedy Space Center. Um, you know, they have had the President talking to astronauts. They've probably done more very visible space-related events in the past Eight or eight or nine months than you might have seen in the entire Obama administration. So, um, don't know what that means, but uh, they clearly know uh, where where uh, where what NASA is doing and how to get in touch with them. 
All right. So uh, let's move on to our second topic, which is SpaceX. So last week, Elon Musk uh, traveled down to Australia for the International Astronautical Congress, where he provided an update on his interplanetary transport system. Uh, I've seen a lot of articles come out the last few days talking about uh, the last thing he talked about, which was the point-to-point Earth transportation concept. And we'll get to that a a little bit later. I think the more important uh, thing is to focus on uh, the meat of his presentation before that. So, and of course, the big thing that came out of that was he thinks he's got an idea now on how to pay for it. Um, And to do that, uh, he's looking at uh, uh, taking these existing uh, hardware, uh, Falcon 9, upcoming Falcon Heavy, uh, Dragon spacecraft, and seemingly bundling everything into the next evolution, which he's calling the BFR rocket. Um, and of course, this is all predicated on uh, incremental uh, success in propulsive landing. Um, so SpaceX, SpaceX hasn't launched the Falcon yet, heavy yet. Um, do you think it'll take some time for them to perfect the propulsive landing for the Falcon heavy? Because that's basically the next thing that's coming up. And then we'll talk about the rest of the BFR stuff in, in just a bit. Well, clearly, the, the schedules that Musk put up were you know, openly admitted they were aspirational, you know, and, 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 you know, people like to dump on SpaceX by saying, oh, you said you'd do this by this date, and you haven't done it yet. Well, it, SpaceX has eventually done everything it said it was going to do. Sometimes they did it early and late, and sometimes they did it right on schedule. Um, as we speak, uh, uh, hardware Falcon 9 heavy, or excuse me, Falcon heavy hardware is being shipped to the Cape. They're modifying the launch pad so that you can put the Falcon can heavy up. Uh, they're about, they're beginning the construction of uh, more landing pads and so forth. So they're they're clearly intending to launch the thing. As to when, uh, you know, at, at the end of this year, I mean, that tends to slip around a bit. You know, there's other things that have come into consideration, including you know, is the pad ready? Uh, have they done the testing? Uh, are there other launches, you know, uh, uh, scheduled? And where they where where can they slip that in? But. Um, clearly, the Falcon Heavy, you know, if he, he, that has to be a, a complete success, uh, at least success as, as successful Falcon 9, if not more so. But what he was talking about is sort of if you if you think back to what he said in Mexico last year, we said he had a big rocket and, and you fly all these people to Mars, and people said that's great. Uh, how much is it going to cost? What's it, who's going to pay for it? And he says, I'll get back to you. Well, in the process of you know the intervening month, uh, year of 12 months of, of, of pondering how to pay for this. Um, he, he ran it up against uh, a variety of other factors, including the fact he realized he had this his own product line that he might have to actually, you know, either com- compete with or replace. And he sort of came up with the notion that every launch that he does needs to somehow move the pieces uh, on the game board towards having this capability of going to Mars. And that if he designed this properly, he'd have a vehicle that was very functional in areas uh, in addition to Mars. And that was one of the first big surprises that he showed uh, 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 one of these big rockets landing on the moon. And and this all became possible when he scaled back the size and, 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 and modified the architecture somewhat so that he could just launch it from the Earth and land there and take off. doesn't need to be refueled or anything on, on the moon. And as he sort of 
worked these scenarios out, it became clear that you could also, you know, use this very same rocket to take off from New York and then land, uh, do a ballistic flight profile and land on the other side of the world within a half an hour or 45 minutes. So all those things came out of the, the rethinking of, of how they took that big rocket and sort of brought it down by, a, I guess it's about a third smaller than the original design. And then added in all the market economics of, well, how much does it cost to do this and, you know, uh, what's the best way to do it? And the best way to develop this rocket is to uh, develop it in plain sight, make it make the same rocket that you're launching, you know, supplies to the space station, for example, uh, is the same one you're going to send to Mars. And as a matter of fact, one of the slides that he showed showed this BFR um, hanging off of the International Space Station. And it would have quite a cargo capability. As a matter of fact, you could probably launch, um, you know, enough material to double the size of the space station, one or two launches. That's pretty big. (laughs) So, okay, but to to get from point A to point B, getting to Mars, it's going to take some time. And yes, his, 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 you know, it's aspirational, his timeline. But, you know, let's let's deal with some, some some of the real practical issues here. So from a technical perspective, how much more difficult is it going to be to propulsively land a Falcon Heavy first stage compared to the Falcon 9 first stage? Well, there's energetics in this. And as you've noticed, sometimes they have a um, – it depends on where they're putting the payload and, and, and how fast the rocket is going when that happens and how much – uh, energy it needs to shed in order to come back to land, and sometimes they can be coming in very fast, sometimes they can come in slow, and sometimes they they landing them out on the barge out in the ocean is the only practical way to do this. But clearly, to get the um, the rocket such that the pieces land back on land um, requires the same amount of uh, precision that they've demonstrated thus far times three, at least. And, of course, you're going to be landing two stages simultaneously. So you're going to have to, you know, pretty much double your crew or double something. And then just as that thing lands, the uh, the core section is going to be coming back. And if you believe what you're, we're now hearing, they may even be trying to uh, recover the second stage. So conceivably, you could have three or four things landing all within the course of a very short period of time. And, you know, obviously, landing accuracy is important. One of the things that Musk brought up in this um, uh, discussion was that very issue of accuracy, and he says that there may come a time when uh, the Falcon 9 will, will not really need landing legs, that it, it will be able to land so precisely that it can land back in the actual launch superstructure from which it took off. And, uh, you know, that, that's clearly no margin for error there. But if you can start developing that level of accuracy and just and proving it again and again and again, um, that just cuts the risk and, and and so forth for larger uh, rockets down the road. And if you look at what they did, I mean, out, out in uh, Texas, they had a thing called the Grasshopper, which was a Falcon 9 stage with uh, like one engine in it. And they practiced having it take off and land and move sideways. And, you know, eventually it blew up. But uh, that's where they got their practice. It's just, you know, launching and launching and launching and blowing things up and launching again. And I'm sure that's the, the path they'll be taking this time as well. So, from if if you had to put a timeline, thinking of everything that they need to do, and of course Elon said, you know, you know, my aspirational notion here is to is twenty twenty two to have uh, a couple of spacecraft, uh, these new BFRs, go to Mars. If you were to put a 
what you would think maybe a realistic timeline on this. What do you think it would be? Well, I'm not going to right off the bat saying I don't believe them because I, I you know, who knows? I mean, I, we don't know what he may have resources financially that we have not been made aware of yet that would allow him to do this. Um, he said it's going to take roughly five years uh, to do this, and he sort of was sort of mocking himself when he said that. So that's kind of a short period of time. But um, he also has a, a, a track record of setting these aspirational goals and then, you know, moving his workforce towards meeting them. And, you know, again, sometimes he meets them, sometimes he misses, sometimes he's late, but he always meets them. And he does so also in a fashion that's uh, contrary to what NASA does. NASA just builds one big rocket, and each one, even though they're maybe the same design, is, is unique. And it's difficult to modify them once you've made them. Uh, Falcons are consumer products. They are forward and backwards compatible. They are constantly improved. Um, they have you know, version numbers that mean something. Uh, sometimes they come out almost as often as uh, you know, operating system revisions. And that's because they were designed to be fixed and modified that way. And so you get an inherent flexibility with all these that you can just literally go in and you know, change things uh, uh, in a computer and then just have you know, pretty much print the rocket out. That They're almost at the point now where they're printing the rockets. And so that gives you a lot of flexibility in terms of when you learn a lesson or how not to do something. You don't have to wait months and months and months for you know, something to get fixed. You can fix it right then and there and test it very quickly. Uh, and which I think with a rocket of the sort that he's talking about sending uh, to the moon or uh, to Mars or whatnot, um, I wouldn't be surprised if a number of them blew up at some point. But it, I suspect that the number that will blow up will be smaller than with the Falcon because every time you go through that process, you learn how not to do something as well as how to do something. And so I think I think you know we'll be watching the first time one of these things takes off. Uh, to see if it reaches space, but then uh, that's now that's only half the game. So the thing is, with the Falcons, most of the customers didn't really care whether the thing came back to land. They just wanted a cheap price to launch the satellite. This whole reusability thing is something that Elon wanted to have in his rockets, but it's not necessary to launch the satellites. But for the scenarios he's talking about, you now really do need to have the ability for this thing to come and make precision landings. And so it's going to be, in essence, twice as hard because now – you can't you can't claim the success if the satellite's in orbit but the rocket blew up on the way back. That doesn't work anymore. So if you're a SpaceX customer, and Elon did say that you know for those that were not uh, prepared to to use this new architecture, that you know they would still be producing the Falcon Nine and the Falcon Heavy as needed. If you're a SpaceX customer, what do you think of this? Visionary, if you will, taking this next step in in evolving the the Falcon line of products into into this new BFR. Well, you look at it like you do iPhones. I mean, they just made an announcement of the you know the iPhone eight, and it's not exactly a big seller because it's not incrementally that much different than a seven, and the seven isn't that much different than the six. But then they also have this X version that's out there that people are more interested in. And so what you, and what you have to do is, you know, you have to come up with classic marketing, you know, the price point that your customers want, the, the features that they need, and um, not if, if people don't need a feature, uh, don't force it down their throat. And so, you know, if they want a different color rocket, you know, we'll give them that option. Um, a lot of them may not even care so long as, you know, they have a level of um, uh, a surety that their satellite will make it to space and that the cost is, you know, the price is right. 
I think they'll find that um, you know once they've got the glitches uh, ironed out about uh, Falcon, it may be uh, you know like uh, I mean uh, Apple sold iPods well after they were you know superseded by uh, the iPhone because they had figured out what people liked and people kept buying them. So it may well be that you know they they have this other product line that they now know how to make. And, and fly very efficiently, and a lot. And they, as a matter of fact, they may have they may eventually decide that um, that's an easy way for them to make the cash that they need to invest in the new rocket, which I'm sure they're thinking about. But as far as looking at the new stuff, you know, a lot of people took risks with space uh, with SpaceX to begin with, on the first launches of certain uh, Falcon models and so forth. And I'm sure they'll be you know asked uh, if they want to try and take a risk on this again because the flip side is is that if you you know, when the launches start getting this cheap, um, risking the loss of a satellite is not as much of a big deal because you're, uh, you know, you've already factored that into your equation, you know, in terms of what it costs to launch versus, you know, what it costs to build a satellite. And the flip side being is that some of these rockets he's talking about could offer payload costs to orbit that are substantially lower than the low prices he already charges. So, yeah, if you're sitting there and you want to put your product in the space and, you know, and the guy who you're already happy with says, hey, guess what? I'm going to build you something that's even cheaper. I, I tend to think that success sells and that, that he's going to be gaining more customers, not losing them. And if you're a SpaceX competitor, is this? Uh, do, you, do you view this as, oh my goodness, this is going to put us out of business, or do you see this as, well, it's going to take him a while to to build this system. We now have time to maybe catch up to where he's at right now. Well, maybe, um, but you know, again, it's sort of like any disruptive uh, market uh, that. You know, you had the ability to launch satellites into space for for half a century. It co- you know, it was expensive because there was really no uh, impetus for uh, United Launch Alliance uh, here in the states and Aerospace and in Europe, since they pretty much had a guaranteed monopoly. There was really no incentive to drop the costs, except when you know their respective governments would get mad and they'd say, "Okay, we'll cut the cost." Cost, but there was really no competition. And now with SpaceX, they went from you know not getting any of the share to getting a substantial portion of the share simply because they were motivated by being able to provide uh, the same, if not better, service, more flexibility at a lower cost, and uh, eventually that worked. Now, what does that do? Uh, it, it's sort of like you know back in the day when they had uh, airliners that would fly across the Pacific and they would stop from one island to you know, and refuel and go to the next. It was very expensive. They'd serve you champagne and you had fancy china. And eventually, somebody said, "You know what? I have a way to get people to the same locations without this fancy champagne. It may take a little longer, but I could charge a lot less." And they, you know, they quickly got you know, a sector, a portion of the, of, of the market to themselves. And then other people saw this. And before you knew it, it increased the number of people who could fly and wanted to fly and it increased the market. So, you know, so long as you keep a good portion of the market to yourself, um, the growth of the market is not a bad thing. Uh, 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 and also so long as you don't um, just stick with your price uh, as it was and not pay attention to what's happening in the rest of the market. If, if you don't, and you just continue just saying, well, this is what it costs, you'll be out of business. But, you know, any good, any good, you know, 
sector of the economy that's growing and vibrant is that way because all the players are paying attention to each other and responding to each other. And uh, if they're successful, it just means more of that product can be sold and bought by more people. And again, a rising tide lifts all boats, in this case, rocket ships. And so as far as um, ULA goes, um, it took them a year or two, and then they suddenly, you know, they hired a new guy, Tory Bruno, and uh, um, they started making noises that sounded like they were actually um, innovative. And it, it reminds me of how Apple Computer was just running away with a PC in the, uh, the, the cell phone business, and, and Microsoft finally got serious, and Windows went from being something you hated to use to something that a lot of people like. But I don't think that they would have had that fire lit under them uh, to change if it weren't for the successes that Apple was having. And the same thing is true right now with the, uh, with regards to SpaceX and its uh, you know, motivational ass, uh, ability to uh, get ULA to change. But it's not just ULA that's you know, thinking about this. It's the companies that build the rockets, uh, Boeing and Lockheed Martin, but also the second-tier uh, providers and you know, the subcontractors. And it's not just SpaceX that's now providing this push. It's Blue Origin. It's Virgin Galactic. It's uh, SNC. And so I don't think you would have seen a lot of that energy in those other companies if, if SpaceX hadn't really sort of blazed the trail. And what's the net result now? You've got a bunch of billionaires pouring money into this, and they're sometimes you know, trash-talking each other, which if you stop and think about it, that's good because people only put money into things like this and get threatened by other companies when there's actually a there there, when there's actually a market sector that you want to get. And that, that should be a good thing to anybody who's trying to understand the whole economics of this. There is a real sector of the economy now, one that was not there 10 years ago. Okay. So uh, we've talked about it from the, the competitor perspective, uh, the customer perspective. Now, how about from the government perspective? You mentioned SLS, the NASA Space Launch System. Um, and you actually tweeted, uh, you know, one thing to notice about the Elon Musk IAC 2017 presentation, no mention of NASA SLS, hashtag irrelevant. So... What does this mean for SLS? I mean, it, SLS is, is still going to keep going because they still need to provide jobs. But is it a program that should be kept going? Well, it was, the interesting thing was uh, Musk was showing some charts that showed all the launch vehicles there and, and used the Saturn V as a comparison for this big rocket he's talking about. Um, and on one hand, um, it, it's more capable in terms of physically launching uh, you know, stuff into space. But in terms of cost, it's also vastly cheaper. But the thing is, why compare it to a Saturn V? Why, not, why, why compare it to a 50-year-old rocket? Why not compare it to the SLS? Well, there's a, maybe because he doesn't think that the SLS is going to ever fly. The Saturn V did. I don't know. Um, is there a place for the SLS? Well, there is by definition because Congress said there is. I mean, people sometimes derisively say that uh, SLS really stands for Senate Launch System, and then they're kind of correct in that regard because you look at the, the language that created it, that in essence took the failed Ares 5 program and said, well, you're going to go build a rocket that makes the maximum use of space shuttle parts, and it has to be able to launch this much and do this and that, and they pretty much designed the rocket right there. And um, they want it built, and it's means, as you noted, it means a lot of jobs in a lot of states. And uh, there's a big trade group, the Coalition for Deep Space Exploration, that uh, is lobbying to keep it alive. And uh, you know, so it's not going away. I will predict 
that one of the things under discussion will be um, what do you use it for? As a cargo rocket, it's, it's probably, you know, if you were to go out and buy a bunch of them, very, very useful. And you could, uh, you know, send a, a big amount of cargo to the moon, to Mars, or, or, or to the outer planets. Uh, but is it the best thing to use to launch humans? I don't think it is. As a matter of fact, I'll predict that um, the, the SLS will fly, but humans will never fly on it. And that the really smart thing to do is to go with all these uh, emerging uh, human spaceflight capabilities and launch people on that. And if you want to launch a big spaceship to go somewhere, um, uh, you know, launch it on the SLS and have the smaller capsule sent up by Boeing or SpaceX or Blue Origin dock with that. And, you know, that way you sort of, you know, once and for all say we're going to do crew uh, flights in one way and we're going to use the big rocket for what big rockets are best for us, launching lots of big heavy things. And so I don't see it getting canceled. A lot of people who want to be canceled are just living in a fantasy world. It is not going to be canceled. Um, it, it will be, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a perfectly good rocket. Um, it, it's using systems that have flown before. The question is just, what do you do with it? And, uh, of course, you know, the question is, if you're not going to fly people on it, what do you do with Orion? And Orion's probably going to be the one loser in this whole thing because, you know, Orion really isn't designed to be launched, uh, to do, uh, low earth orbit missions. It can, it's just not designed for that. And it needs a rather large rocket to, to launch it with any meaningful uh, capability. Um, there are variants though. I mean, you could, you could just launch Orion as a command module without a heat shield and just have it be part of a spacecraft that uh, never returns to earth itself. Uh, cause the, all the systems inside would pretty much be unchanged, but you know, they, they've got to make a decision because the, the problem we've had the past five or six years is that, you know, it requires a certain amount of money to pay to do commercial space properly. And it's never gotten that. Uh, there's also a certain amount of money that's required to make SLS and Orion happen. And it's underfunded in that regard. And so to expect all the money for all these systems to be available is a bit naive. Something's got to get cut somewhere. And at the same time, you're not going to lose SLS and you're not going to lose uh, the, the SpaceX and the Starliners and so forth. So something's got to be done. Okay, so moving on to our third topic, which is related, uh, also at the International Astronautical Congress on the same day, but uh, earlier in the day, Lockheed Martin did a presentation uh, of their Mars Base Camp, and uh, they talked about how it aligns with uh, NASA's uh, Lunar Deep Space Gateway uh, and, and the Mars Service Lander, and so they've come out with their concept, and of course, it uses Orion. So... What do you think of this concept? Is this just, uh, is there any reality in it? Uh, or uh, you just finished saying that you don't think Orion, Orion might not survive the cut, as it were. Um, I mean, Lockheed's a pretty big company with a lot of lobbying. Uh, do you think they can keep this going? And is it a good idea? Well, there's like five questions in that. And, yeah. I, and let me take the first <laughs> one. And that is the Deep Space Gateway. Um, NASA likes to come up with things uh, that interest it that they can build. It doesn't mean that they make sense oftentimes. Uh, before there was the Deep Space Gateway, there was the asteroid retrieval mission, which kept changing from we're going to go to an asteroid or we're going to go bring a piece back and ended up being a boulder. And, you know, and how, it was be two or three SLS launches to send hardware out there. And then, of course, Congress never liked it and re routinely said, you're not going to do this. Cut the funding. 
And, uh, you know, eventually when the Trump folks came in, that's one of the first things they said is, uh, you know, that's it. We're not going to do that. Just can it. And they shut it down. Well, NASA had all this stuff that they were kind of thinking about, and they said, well, let's go with the Deep Space Gateway. And so they just, like, moved a lot of the people off of uh, the asteroid mission onto this thing, and they went ahead with it. has not been funded. Congress has already said they don't like it. They don't see the need for it. And uh, even though an agreement was announced at the IAC between the U.S. and Russia, it was an agreement to study it. No funding has been offered by any country or any legislative body. And the studies that Boeing and uh, uh, Lucky Martin are doing are mostly self-funded, and they're just all like, well, what if, uh, you know, scenarios on PowerPoint. And what's emerged from that, of course, is this notion that you build a deep space gateway for some reason uh, in orbit around the moon, and that's where you build the ship that's going to go to Mars. That would make sense only if you're going to refuel the ship from the moon, but that's not really in the discussion. So it sort of doesn't make any sense why you would do that there. Uh, the old adage, if you're going to go to Mars, you should go to Mars, not go via the moon. But if you're looking to enable a cis-lunar architecture, one where you start developing you know, shipyards, so to speak, in space, uh, fuel depots, things like that, where you can mix, mix, mix and match hardware to do different missions like to the asteroids, to the moon, or go on to Mars, that's not a bad idea, but a lot of people would not necessarily put this thing in lunar orbit. Um, and if you... If you're going to really go expeditionary in terms of going back to the moon, you know, it, there is some logic to having a space station in orbit that you can transit from there to Earth and back and then have landers, you know, that are, get reused going down to the lunar surface. It's not, a, not unlike, um, you know, you and I have been to Devon Island. I mean, that's how you do logistics and so forth. You cache your supply somewhere, and then you can go from that depot on to your, your point of exploration and back, and you don't have to bring everything with you every time you go. But we don't get any indication that this deep space gateway is actually going to include Americans landing on the moon. It might, and that's what they say, might. So you've got this space station that's you know, being built in lunar orbit at the same time that NASA would probably be shutting the one down in low Earth orbit. And a lot of people in Congress, including Mr. Bridenstine, say, wait a minute, uh, that space station in low Earth orbit is very useful too. And uh, you go back to NASA and say, well, okay, uh, who's going to pay for this deep space gateway? And they sort of say it depends on canceling the International Space Station participation by the U.S., and it also would involve uh, a lot of private sector stuff happening in low Earth orbit. If any of those things don't happen, then you don't have the money for the deep space gateway. So now you see Lockheed Martin predicating a Mars architecture on this iffy space station that nobody seems to want to support. So if you, if you if that's a prerequisite for how they do things, it's deeply flawed. But let's just say that the deep, they don't require the deep space gateway and that they're just getting to Mars with SLS launches. Um, what they propose to build is a what they call a base camp in orbit, which is similar to what I was talking about about put, putting something in orbit on the moon. And uh, you would build that capability up in Mars orbit. And that would have things that could go down to and come back to uh, go down to the surface and come back to that station, and there'd be a way for things to arrive in Mars orbit and dock with the space station and then leave. But you'd you'd be able to continually use this habitation system up there, which means you don't have to bring it with you every time you go to Mars, and you don't have to bring it all down to the surface with you every time you land. Not a bad idea. And before you land, if you're, you're just living in that uh, space station orbiting Mars and you have some relay satellites, you can now teleoperate rovers in the ground with like virtually no latency 
And, uh, you know, that could be very useful for a variety of things, including just, you know, building the Mars base that you will live in someday. So that's not a bad idea. The idea that they have a, a single stage to orbit uh, Mars lander uh, that also uses uh, propellant uh, de- uh, derived from uh, materials on Mars, that's a good idea too. Uh, but it's all predicated upon somebody paying for it because I have never heard Lockheed Martin or Boeing with their own, they have the, also have their own ideas on this. I've never heard them say that they'd be willing to pay the bill or pay most of it. That's the big difference between what they're talking about and what SpaceX is talking about doing. SpaceX is saying, we're, we are going to go do this, and you don't, see, you don't see NASA logos, and you don't see them putting their hands out asking NASA for money. That's the major difference here. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think we've used up all our time. Uh, it's great uh, talking to you about some of these uh, issues. Uh, I want to thank you for being a guest on the SpaceQ podcast, and uh, who knows, uh, depending on the feedback, we might do this again in the future. Let me know. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the SpaceQ podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook at the SpaceQ and don't forget to like us on Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn at Mark K. Boucher and if we're connected, you'll get SpaceQ articles and the podcast notification in your newsfeed. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider rating the show and writing a review if you're so inclined.